This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. A couple of months ago, there was a short news item in the electronics press, and it appeared with relatively little notice. But if you have a USB device in your station, and that's just about every amateur these days, you may want to lend an ear. You're probably familiar with USB-C cables, which have become increasingly popular in recent years. Well, the USB-C 2.0 standard has just been revised to 2.1. What does this mean for you? Well, the new specification has bumped up the maximum voltage to 48 volts. That's sufficient to deliver 240 watts at 5 amps. That said, you'll still be able to plug in USB-C Type 2.1 devices into USB-C Type 2.0 ports and vice versa. Looking under the hood of the plug itself, though, the standards on the mid-plate have gotten quite a bit stricter. A new paragraph has been added that mandates that pins A4 through A9 and B4 through B9, and those correspond to power, power delivery, and legacy USB 2 support, must not short to ground during connector mating. Aha! Well, the new specification, because it supports higher power levels, gets fairly detailed about engineering considerations for predicting, detecting, and mitigating arcing when unplugging USB cables. This isn't something we've had to be very concerned about in the past. Yes, you can still have arcing at 5 or 12 volts, but the potential for damage obviously increases if higher voltages are involved. Interestingly, arcing while plugging in a device isn't a problem, because the way the system works, the voltage isn't present until after the cable is connected. I think the biggest change we're going to see will be popping up in new laptop computers. The bump in power delivery will make it possible for manufacturers to standardize USB-C chargers across, well, their entire laptop product range. If you're buying a new laptop late this year and into 2022, don't be surprised if you see a sticker or some other promotion stating that the laptop now supports USB 2.1. The bottom line for you is that the laptop will work with increasingly powerful and power-hungry external devices. We're already seeing a few amateur radio transceivers with USB charging capability, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. NASA has been launching a few rockets in recent months to study how some radio waves escape through the ionosphere and impact the environment that surrounds some GPS and geosynchronous satellites, such as those for weather monitoring and communications. You think we might be talking about VHF and UHF radio signals since these punch right through the ionosphere pretty easily. However, one flight is called the VLF Trans-Ionospheric Propagation Experiment Rocket, and that mouthful reduces to the acronym VIPER. 
Viper is going to study very low-frequency radio, or VLF waves, that are produced naturally by lightning, for example, but that are also generated by transmitters, including ham stations operating on 2,200 meters. Considering the very low power hams used on this band, Viper isn't too concerned about us. But apparently, higher power signals do escape the ionosphere at night and even manage to accelerate electrons in the Van Allen radiation belts. The principal investigator is Dr. John Bunnell at the University of California, Berkeley. He maintains that VLF signals escape with sufficient strength to propagate along the Earth's magnetic field lines and end up interacting with high-energy electrons trapped in the Van Allen belts. In case you're unfamiliar, the Van Allen belts contain intense electron fluxes, and these are occurring as close as 14,000 miles altitude, and they extend all the way out to more than 23,000 miles. As you can imagine, there are a lot of satellites in that range, including the one carrying the amateur radio transponder on board Qatar Oscar 100. The satellites are designed to deal with this environment, but scientists really want to see what role very low-frequency signals could be playing in this. Could they be making the electron fluxes more intense? No one's really sure. What makes the Viper flights particularly interesting is that they'll likely gather new data from an area that really hasn't been explored. I mean, humans have been looking at VLF absorption from the ground and from orbit for decades, but never in the space between, which is exactly what Viper hopes to do. I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Fay, KG5VBY, and he has an article coming up in a future QST Eclectic Technology column about a project that he's been involved with that, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call QMesh. Uh, good afternoon, Dan. Uh, good afternoon, Steve. Now, How are you doing? Good, good. Now, this is based, as I understand it, on the uh, so-called LoRa transceiver modules. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Before we get into QMesh, then, could you explain for listeners who may not be familiar what these transceiver modules really are? They are basically small um, radio modem chips designed for like low-power Internet of Things devices. They're designed to be used, say, in some sensor that that might run for a couple years off of a battery. The main appeal of them from the low-power sensor IoT perspective is that it gives you a higher receive sensitivity because it uses a type of spread spectrum called chirp spread spectrum. And that spread spectrum capability is also claimed to reduce um, susceptibility to some forms of narrowband interference. These modules, as I understand it, and I, I probably misunderstand it, uh, I know that there's one that I've seen, uh, believe it or not, on Amazon selling for something like $30 or even less uh, that operates in the amateur 70-centimeter band and another one I think up in 33 centimeters. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Some of the LoRa chipsets can operate also in the 1.25-meter band, the 2-meter band, although you're not allowed to do spread spectrum in the at that band in the United States, so it's not allowed here. And there's also, I forget the exact wavelength, but the 2.4 gigahertz band, there's a different chipset that supports that band. 
Some hams are getting a phenomenal range out of these low rye units. Uh, is that due primarily to the protocol they use or what? I mean, I think it's mainly due to the um, chirp spread spectrum. That I think that probably improves the, probably gives you about 6 to 9 dB more um, link budget than, say, a standard FSK waveform. The other part of it is if you want to get the really, really long range, you can dial the data rate down to some to extremely low rates. Like I think the lowest you can do is 18 bits per second, and you can use that to increase your range further. So those are the two main factors I'm aware of that improve, that cause the surprisingly good range. Well, now how do we bring QMesh into it? What is that? The long range aspect of LoRa is helpful here. The main game that's going on here is it's QMesh is playing games with the spread spectrum aspect of the LoRa waveform. Basically, it's doing doing different things to reduce the amount of self-interference between transmissions because what QMesh does is every node, when it receives a packet, it will retransmit it at exactly the same time, which is going to be a huge source of interference normally yes so the idea is to use these spread spectrum characteristics and do some other tricks to improve the um, non-self anti-self interference aspects of LoRa to make basically a streaming mesh network okay and in the QST article that you have coming up you mentioned uh, doing voice communication how how would that work with QMesh well Basically, the voice aspect, it's just streaming data. The, the novel feature that has come out or project that's come out in, say, I don't know, the past five to ten years is there is now a free open source voice vocoder called Codec 2. And the advantage of Codec 2 is you can encode voice at low data rates, like the low data rates that LoRa can support. So Codec 2 can go as low as um, 450 bits per second. And it can go up to like three kilobits a second. So that's easily within the uh, maximum data rate that I expect QMesh to be able to support. Now, the actual process of getting this to run on here is there's an application that came out that someone built and released in February of this year called Codec 2 Walkie Talkie. And what that does is it will send out basically stream Codec 2 encoded voice over a KISS TNC. Another person, I, the person I believe who developed Pico APRS was able to demonstrate um, at the lower bit rates, I think it was like the 450 bits per second version of Codec 2 over his Pico APRS device. So my plan is to do something similar. I've developed the QMesh nodes such that, so that they function as um, basically um, KISS TNCs. Okay. And how would, and I know this might be a little difficult to imagine, but can, can you give me a practical example of how one of these nodes or a network of these nodes might function in a voice application, how somebody would access it? Well, I mean, if you had if you had a party of, say, I don't know, several people, and say person one can talk to person two, person two can talk to person three, but person one can't talk to person three. Person one can start talking, and their voice will get relayed through person two to person three. So that's the simplest example. You can also imagine situations 
where you have standalone nodes that say, are, for example, are solar powered and running a battery, and you just have all those repeaters over an area, and they basically build up coverage so that when you talk in there, one or more of those repeaters will receive receive you, retransmit, and eventually it'll get to everyone. And other people listening on that particular channel and configuration will be able to hear you. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. How would I okay. how would I access uh, hardware wise a QMesh node that that was near me? You're probably not going to do it with your typical, you know, uh, 433 megahertz handheld, or would you? Um, no, you'd have to. Right now, it's using what I would probably consider semi-custom hardware. There's a microcontroller development board. There's a custom board I developed that contains one of the LoRa modules. Um, it contains some other useful things, like there's a, a spy flash chip. There's an OLED display. But basically, you'd have to get those parts assembled and procured. In the future, I've been considering trying to port it to some kind of standardized device like um, there's some TTGO. It's a Chinese company. They actually um, they have some stuff that could some LoRa based devices that might actually work here. And also another thing, in addition to this, the LoRa side of things with the microcontroller and the LoRa radio, you'll also want some sort of smartphone that which should support Bluetooth, but generally needs to support some kind of serial connection or Bluetooth connection to talk to that um, microcontroller plus LoRa device. So I'm hoping in, in the near future, people would be able to quickly stand up a LoRa device, one or sorry, a QMesh device using, say, one of these standardized like TTGO parts. But for right now, you have there's sort of a need for a semi-custom hardware setup. So you envision, perhaps, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, a situation where I could use my smartphone, perhaps with mm-hmm. an app designed for the purpose, to access the LoRa, should we call it a transceiver, uh, and sure. w- which then mm-hmm. accesses the network. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. Okay. Or alternatively, you build up your own, <laughs> if we call it a transceiver, uh, in the finest ham tradition, of uh, of parts, as you say. Yes, yes. How many of these mesh nodes uh, could you string together in a network, and what sort of distance or physical coverage are we talking about? Um, okay, so in terms of maximum nodes, um, a lot of that's contingent on, I've done some experiments, and maybe I've seen three nodes retransmit simultaneously, and I get good receive rates. So the self-interference isn't ruining my communications there, which is good. And that's what I'm pursuing here. I haven't done, say, over 10 large numbers, like 10 to 20 nodes to see what the interference ceiling is before communications fall off. In terms of range between nodes, I'd say if they're put up reasonably high, you can probably get like one to three miles between basically node to node, whether a node is your, whether node is one you're communicating on some infrastructure node or whatever. Um, in terms of coverage, that's why I'd say it's probably like each node might have a radius of one to three miles. This is just a fairly, um, it's sort of speculation. I mean, I've done other LoRa testing where I've gotten over a hundred miles, but that was wow. at very low data rates and added power 
because I was transmitting about 25 watts. I had a special temporary authorization to do so, and this was very high-gain antennas. Um, in terms of number of hops, the protocol doesn't really have any fundamental limit to the number of times you can hop. It's just each hop probably takes at least like 100 to 200 milliseconds. So as you keep hopping, eventually you're going to have this really high latency and it'll probably get annoying. Um, another theoretical issue that you might run into at really long distances, maybe, is you um, you might have two nodes. You might get like a, a – the symbol rate is, say – okay, the LoRa symbol rate say at worst like 150 microseconds. If your distance is long enough, you might actually exceed your – the speed of light travel time in that distance might exceed the length of a symbol, which can start to cause some of the interference mitigation things I've done to fail. But I imagine in those kind of situations, it's not going to be an issue. But I'd say generally, probably a usable um, network might be, at least in the beginning, probably like maybe 10 to 20 nodes geographically dispersed and maybe like two to three hops Oh, that's impressive. In your article, you mentioned that the network, the QMesh network, uh, would be self-healing. That was the terminology you used. Can you explain what you mean by that? Okay, so in a lot of mesh networks, they if, if you have different nodes that are retransmitting and they just kind of disappear or reappear, there isn't really a good, there isn't really a fast, the network basically has to rebuild itself in a sense. Um, because they have to build new routes, and the routes being like, okay, I will send the traffic across these nodes. What QMesh does is it does flooding, a different technique, where every node repeats everything it sees. And they all do it at the same time, and it's designed so that they don't inter destructively interfere with each other. And what that means is if a node pops up, it'll just start repeating what it sees and as soon as it starts coming in. There's no weird computations. It doesn't need to figure out where other network nodes are it just goes and same deal if a node disappears from the network everyone else just kind of continues to retransmit what it sees so unless that node was providing very specific exclusive coverage to help some other node the network should continue to function as it was before okay these uh these modules are as i mentioned earlier are so affordable that uh this is a project that could spread like wildfire, you know, in, in terms of uh, hams being able to uh, to set something like this up for relatively little money. Yes, yes. I mean, that's one of the things that's exciting about this is generally it's basically these little LoRa modules provide you some basic spread spectrum communication at very low cost and also very low power. I mean, given the existence of software-defined radio, you can craft whatever waveform you want, but all the equipment, especially transmitting equipment, consumes are, is fairly expensive and also consumes significant amounts of power. In theory, like on a, from a power perspective, you can probably get this down to a couple milliamps while it's just waiting for stuff to communicate for messages to come in. So yeah, this is very inexpensive and it's very exciting as a result. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fay. I'll uh, look forward to seeing your article in print, and I'll look forward to hearing more about this. Yeah, thank you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. 
Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.